I guess it's time to start. Well, I guess I should should make sure that I got my other stuff here. Yes, I don't know what's going on with my throat, but um, I sound what sexy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Okay, uh, let me open us up with prayer and we'll get going. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we, we marvel at the privilege that it is that we have to know you. Um, it is not something that should be taken lightly, but it is, in fact, an incredible blessing. And we praise you and we love you because of it. We thank you for your love for us. We ask, Father, that you uh, would continue to be merciful to us. That as we uh, look at the doctrine of Scripture this morning, your word, your revelation to us, that you would uh, use it to strengthen us, to sanctify us, that you would be glorified in uh, its message. Um, we thank you for the redemption that uh, you have provided for us through your Son, that we may be called your children, that we may address you as our Father, and that we may stand before you in this hour. We lift this up this this time up to you, Lord. Please use it for your purposes, in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so once a month we're taking on the subject of taking God at His word. I don't know if you remember, but we've had a very similar Sunday school covering this book. Y'all remember that? I didn't remember that until I started looking through my notes. <laughs> I have several keynotes <laughs> on this book. <laughs> this book is Why Trust the Bible, okay? And um, it is by Greg Gilbert with, from Nine Marks. Um, and uh, so, but this book dealt with the can more, more dealt more specifically with the canon and how it came to be, and how we can trust it, okay? What we're studying this time, taking God at His word, is more of not questioning the source of God's word, but in fact, uh, the doctrine of Scripture, okay? And we're going to start this morning with a review, uh, since we're covering these once a month, I thought it probably appropriate to kind of review what we've done so far. I hope to get through that very quickly. <laughs> Y'all can pray for me on that one. Uh, and then we will move on with today's lesson, which is on the sufficiency of Scripture. So, uh, taking God at His word. Uh, we started with the, the uh, chapter, Believing, Feeling, and Doing, and Dennis led us in the in looking at that chapter, then last month, Rob led us with the chapter of um, 
something more sure. Um, what theological word would you say that covers that notion? don't know that Rob was real specific on that, but by the way, I ask a question. How many of y'all are actually reading this book along with us? Okay, very good. Not too many, but some. So today is going to be just a recapitulation of what is in the book. Okay, so then Rob did something more sure, okay, which is was pr pr the focus of which was on inerrancy, okay? And then today we are going to be looking at God's word is enough. What attribute of scripture might you think, well, I've already told you, sufficiency, okay? So we're going to be looking at sufficiency. Okay, so to review uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, uh, <clears throat> the purpose of the book, the doctor, this is the book, the doctrine of scripture. This book is on this specific topic, but it is not exhaustive. It is intended to be more of uh, focusing on three particular aspects. What we should believe about it, okay? How should it affect us? Or how would we, how, in other words, and he, he put the, he called it feeling, all right, how should we feel about it, all right, and what should we do about it, doing, okay? So those are the three primary aspects of Scripture that DeYoung is wanting, and he, he basically states at the beginning of the book, this is the purpose of the book, this is, I'm, I'm giving you the end of the book at the beginning of the book, and then we'll begin the discussion, okay? <clears throat> so... Uh, now, this is not something that Dennis talked about. Do you all remember this? One of the things I'm trying to do is I'm trying to tie some of what we're doing with this lesson back to various lessons that we've had in the past. Anybody remember this? <laughs> the Johnson's Beckers. What's that? From the Doctrine of God. That's right. This is the triad uh, this is John Frame's triad of perspectivalism. Oop, I hit the wrong button, sorry. Of perspectivalism. In this triad, he, he basically talks about, any, in looking at something, we should look at it from several different perspectives. And he defines, defines those primarily, he defines those perspectives as normative, situational, and experiential. Okay? Remember that? All right. So in the case of DeYoung, I think this is exactly what he's doing. All right? He's taking a perspectival view towards the doctrine of Scripture. Okay? So he, in terms of the normative, he talks about what should we believe about Scripture. Right? What are the normatives? What, are the, what is the authority that we stand on with Scripture? In terms of the situational, what does Scripture say about what we are to do about it? Okay? And in terms of the experiential, 
How should it affect us? Right? Okay. Uh, what should we believe? So some of the things that he covered and what we should believe is... <coughs> and he was working from <coughs> Psalm 119. All right? What should we believe? What God's Word says is true. Number one. I'm trying to make sure I might need to quit. Okay. Uh, we basically we can trust it. Um, therefore, what it teaches may be valued and applied as appropriate, with without fear of being led astray. God's word demands what is right, right? and <clears throat> God's word provides for what is good. And from Psalms one nineteen. It is blessed. It helps us to avoid shame. The way of safety. Good counsel. Gives strength. Gives hope. Provides wisdom. It defines the way in which we should go. All right? How should we feel about it? Young gave three Ds. Delight. It's a book that with that it, it's a book with great benefit to us and one with grave warnings. It is a book about us and those we love. And most of all, it is a book that brings us face to face with the one who possesses all greatness, beauty, and power. Desire. His desire, caused it, his desire causes him to request clarity and understanding from God. One's desire causes one, I'm sorry, to request clarity and understanding. There is a disposition towards God and his word that is important. Dependence. There is no calamity like the silence. Of God. Man does not live by bread alone. <clears throat> okay, so what should I do about it? Young, young provides these. We should read it. We should study it. We should obey it. We should incorporate it in our praise. We should pray. What are the goals of the book? It's, this book is not an apologetic, um, and nor is it exhaustive, but it is help to help us trust the Bible, to teach what the Bible says about itself. Scripture alone is competent to tell what our doctrine of Scripture should be, and to show that Scripture, that the Scriptures are enough for salvation, and how to live to please God. Right. Okay, then, so that completes the summary of the first week, first, first lesson. Chapter 2 was led by Rob. Rob made the, uh, began by looking at the Westminster Confession, uh, 
paragraph 1.8, which is on the uh, section 1, which is on the, of the Holy Scripture, and 8 dealt with, deals with inspiration and inerrancy. And Rob made the following, Rob made more observations than I'm going to present here, but I'm just going to present some of the, some of the observations that he made. Okay. <clears throat> the autographs did not become the word, they are the word. John Frame calls them, makes, John Frame calls them, adds the, the, the adjective divine. Divine words, all right, which I kind of felt have found helpful, and just you know focusing, making putting putting a focus. These words, think about that. These words in Scripture are divine. God's words. <clears throat> Accurate copies. And accurate translations of those co copies are no less inspired. Rob recommended, and Rob also recommended literal translations over uh, other types of translations. Then he moved on to the passage that was in our chapter, which is 1 Peter 1, and he made the following observations. <clears throat> um, the story of Jesus' transfiguration, resurrection, and ascension is not a false myth, but truth. I don't remember, if you, if you will recall back when we did do this study, I, I, in, in my, one of my lessons, I played some clips from, and I, oh, his name escapes me at the moment, played some, but he's a rather famous critic of Scripture. And he puts and and the and and the very and and I, and I noticed in my notes that frankly, <clears throat> yes, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that He was capable of doing miracles, then it is very difficult to believe Scripture because you have thrown out the very thing that separates Jesus Christ from the rest of humanity. You've thrown out the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you don't believe that. So then the Scriptures become simply and a historical and a not very accurate historical account of some man that lived in the middle of the Roman Empire. Okay? And you're gonna and, and the miracles become they're not miracles, they're myths. All right? They can't be true. He was just a man. Fundamental to believing Scripture is believing that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. If you can't believe that, then you got no business spending much time with the Word of God. But if you do believe that, then what does that do to those words? These words that we have. Again, they are divine words. Okay. 
Uh, Peter lays the claim to, to being an eyewitness, and Rob pointed out that he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses, called by God, God's redemptive work, making their accounts and insights part of the revelation of God. And, and, and this is, this is a, a, we'll talk about this a little further along, this is, this is an idea that's a little bit fresh to me, new to me, in, in terms of seeing the, the apostles as an extension of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter's direct reference to the transfiguration, coupled with Psalms 2, is an appeal that Christ will indeed return, return refuting the claim of some. Continuing with uh, Rob's observations, Peter appeals to the prophetic word as a second witness, um, as a second witness. He pointed out that the, the, the triune nature of God's revelation, the Father spoke to men born by the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself as direct revelation to and through his apostles. Peter's subsequent use of, the old, of Old Testament passages in his teaching would indicate that when he speaks of the prophetic word, he has the whole Old Testament in mind. All right. So the question was, in, in the passage that we were covering, what did he mean by the prophetic word? Well, later in P Peter, in numerous places in Peter, Peter quotes from various places in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Thus, Peter creates a direct link between the testimony of the apostles and that of the Old Testament. They both deal with the same subject, specifically Jesus and his work. The Old Testament, when it's all, when it's all said and done, the Old Testament is about the coming Messiah. All right? The New Testament is about the risen Messiah. <clears throat> uh, Peter speaks of the prophetic word as guaranteed. That is, God will do what he says he will do. And it is guiding. It is a light, and we do well to pay attention to what it reveals. Okay, so we'll close the review section with a couple of quotes from the book. <clears throat> One cannot doubt the Bible without far-reaching loss, both of the fullness of truth and the fullness of life. If, therefore, we have at heart spiritual renewal for society, for churches, and for our own lives, we shall make much of the entire trustworthiness, that is, the inerrancy, of Holy Scripture as the inspired and liberating Word of God. And that's the young quoting J.I. Packer. <clears throat> Do you talk about the Scripture the way the apostles talked about Scripture? You might think too highly of your interpretations of Scripture but you cannot think too highly of Scripture's interpretation of itself. 
You can exaggerate your authority in handling the Scriptures. But you cannot exaggerate the Scriptures' authority to handle you. You can use the Word of God to come to wrong conclusions, but you cannot find any wrong conclusions in the Word of God. Okay, and now we get to move on to today's lessons. lesson. All right, so <coughs> um, in, in, our, in the third chapter, which is God's Word is Enough, God, uh, De Young takes as his passage... Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And my wife always complains that I have too many slides. So, sorry for you, but you're going to have to get your Bibles out because I didn't put the Scripture up in a slide. <laughs> to reduce the number of slides. <laughs> I'm going to be reading from... Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to be... I'm, however, I, here, I'm going to read the passage first and then we'll take a look at it. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken of us, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Question DeYoung begins his chapter with about eight questions, and I have reproduced three here just to give you a flavor of what he asks. Have you ever wondered if the Bible is really able to help you with your deepest problems? Have you ever thought to yourself that the biblical teaching on sexuality needs updating? Have you ever felt like the Bible just wasn't enough for living a faithful life in today's world? If you can answer yes to any of these questions, and like I said, say he had eight, and we all will at times, then you are struggling with the sufficiency of Scripture. He then lists the attributes of Scripture, the four attributes. Oh, he lists the four attributes of Scripture. Sufficiency. The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. We don't need any new revelation from heaven. Clarity. The saving message of Jesus Christ is plainly taught in the scriptures and can be understood by all who have ears to hear it. We don't need an official magisterium to tell us what the Bible means. Authority. The, the last word always goes to the Word of God. We must never allow the teachings of science, of human experience, 
or of church councils to take precedent over Scripture. And necessity. General revelation is, is, general revelation is not enough to save us. We cannot know God savingly by means of personal experience and human reason. We need God's Word to tell us how to live, who Christ is, and how to be saved. So those are his definitions of the four attributes of Scripture. So stated another word, way, God's Word is <clears throat> understandable, final, sorry, final, understandable, needed, and enough. Uh, and since this is a lesson on sufficiency, uh, I thought we'd take a look at another definition. This one is John Piper's. And it doesn't say anything different. It just says it with John Piper's flair. The Scriptures are sufficient in the sense that they are the only, quote, once for all, inspired and therefore inerrant words of God that we need in order to know the way to heaven, making you wise to salvation, and the way of obedience, equipped for every good work. Before we leave the topics of uh, the attributes of Scripture, Young pointed out that we can use the mnemonic scan uh, to remember the words, these attributes. So you've got sufficiency, you've got clarity, you've got authority, and you've got necessity. I kind of thought, well, we could take the apple approach, put an eye on the beginning of it, and include inerrancy. All right? So now you've got eye scan, okay? And that'll get you inerrancy in there, too. <laughs> okay. All right. He then points out, sufficiency tends to be the evangelical problem. If anybody really is going to struggle with sufficiency, it's Christians. Okay? It's just, you know, we need more. Would that God would speak directly to us. You know, and we and and there are struggles within Christian circles on it, on that problem. Okay, for clarity, uh, points out that that's the postmodern's problem. All right, can't mean what it means, or meaning is what is the meaning. All right, in a postmodern world, meaning is subjectively defined. It is not objective. All right, authority is the liberal or the progressive's problem. And when we speak of progressive here, we're not talking about political progressives, we're talking about theological progressives. Okay? And then for the necessity, that one is the atheist's problem. Okay? Scripture is more than enough. Scripture is clear enough to make us responsible for carrying out our present responsibilities to God. This is John Frame. Enough is revealed in order for one to know how to be saved 
and how to live to please God. We do not need to add to it to meet today's challenges or subtract from it to mesh with today's ideals. The sacred and divinely inspired scriptures are sufficient for the exposition of truth. And that, is an, that was a quote from Athanasius. Um, who lived in the, the third century, who, who was born in the third century, lived in the fourth century B.C. When the spiritual gifts are difficult, when the spiritual life gets difficult or just a bit boring, we look for new words, new revelations, new experiences to bring us closer to God. The bright light at the moment of death, the near-death experiences. The special word from God. There are best sellers about people who have conversed with God directly. <clears throat> I think we should call this sad for spiritual attention deficit disorder. Okay, and then a, a thought that occurred to me when looking at this, do we really need more conversation with God? Or do we need to develop better listening skills and spend more time doing that? All right, Hebrews. The goal of Hebrews. This is uh, quite a nifty little summary. He points out, that the goal of Hebrews throughout is to show that Christ is superior to all of the old stuff, okay, as he puts it, all right? He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses, to Joshua, to Aaron, Abraham, Melchizedek, the old covenant, the tabernacle, the high priests, the treasures of this world, Mount Sinai, and this earthly city, all right? So that's... Those are some of the things. But long ago, God spoke. So, in this passage, and I've, okay, so I read it earlier. In this passage, <coughs> there are four uh, contrasts. The first contrast is eras. Long ago, verses in these last days, which are references, obviously, before and after Christ's work, death, work, Christ's work, death, and resurrection. Essentially, the epics are the old and the new covenant. One covered the time of human history in which God's redemption was not yet accomplished, but in which God was setting the stage and preparing the world for it. And one covenant, the new covenant, covers human history since the completion of God's redemptive plan. That's key. Since the completion of, the, of God's redemptive plan. All right. there, also is, there is also a contrast in recipients. There are the old patriarchs and our forefathers and the new ones. And, the new, and under the new covenant, it's to us. All right. 
There are new agents. There is a contrast of agents. In the old, it was the prophets. In the new, it's Jesus. Okay? And different ways. In the old, there were visions, dreams, voices, a burning bush, a pillar of fire, a donkey, writing on the wall, all various means of God communicating. But today, but, but when Christ came, it is only through his suffering. All of which are intended to show that Christ is the superior final agent of God's redemption and revelation. Then there, he, in our passage, there are seven affirmations. The Son is heir of all things. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, which is to be. In Psalms 2, verses 7 through 9, which is the, a messianic psalm, I tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessels. In Matthew 8, 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth and on earth has been given to me. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Who can claim that? Who can claim that? I mean, I've heard it said that in the, in the first three Gospels, Jesus never said he was God. All right? Um, and that's a, that is, you know, in, in terms of putting to... These, this, this would be said from somebody who does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But who can lay claim to all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Who can lay claim to Only one kind of person can lay claim to that. All right? All right. <coughs> Sorry. The Son, is create, the Son is creator of all things. 2C. Through whom also he created the world. Recall in Genesis that God spoke the universe in, into existence. That word became the word incarnate. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. First Colossians I'm sorry, Colossians 1, verse 16. And there's a tremendous number of parallels between that passage in Colossians and this passage in Hebrews. For by him, that is Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him 
and for him. The Son is the sustainer of all things. 3b, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is the power of his word that holds the universe together. When I ponder that, to thinking, you know, there's not a whole lot said that, I, that I'm aware of that's really said about this. And in part, I think it's because th this idea is, all, is incomprehensible. When you stop and you really ponder that it is His Word that holds the universe together, I mean, it's... Right? There's just no way to get your head around that, I don't think. There's, 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 it, and, but it points to the fact of how much we don't understand about the power and majesty of God. Right? <coughs> um, in Colossians 1.17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Without the Son of God, we don't be. Okay? We go poof and are gone. Again, it's just nearly impossible to wrap your hand around, head around what that signifies. The Son is the revelation of God. 3a. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. All right? But he is a God-man. He is incarnate. Okay? So he is the revelation of God in physical flesh. I say is, because he is. He was back then, and he is today. The revelation of God in flesh. Um, Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Corinthians 4.4 In their case, the God, little g, of this world was blind, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And this harkens back to, you either believe Jesus is the Son of God or you don't. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. <clears throat> the Son has made purification for our sins. This is 3C, after making purification for sins. This, this basically, what, what did making purification for sins do for us? What did it bring? Peace. 
How many of y'all heard Sproul's teaching on the wrath of God? And what it is that Jesus Christ made peace for his people with God. In Colossians 1.20, notice how I'm bringing a lot from Colossians 1. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of, the cro- of his cross. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been found justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Hebrews 9.13-14 harkens back to what he says here in chapters 1. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of, the he- of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He sat down, 3D. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Mark 16, 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And finally, the Son is much superior to the angels. Verse 4. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Ephesians 1, 17 through 23. This is a bit of a long passage. Hang with me. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head of all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we talked about the power of his word that holds all of creation together. And Paul prays that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. That power is capable of taking us to heaven. Conclusions of this section. God is fully revealed in the Son because the Son is God. So he kind of makes the point, we get the fullness. Well, I'm not sure that we get the fullness, okay? But maybe the fullness is easier to, to, to grasp because it's talked about a little bit more, okay? But Jesus is the full revelation of God. And, and, and what's going to be the follow-on question? If Jesus is the full revelation of God, then do we need any other? Or is he sufficient? Just as important is the finality. <clears throat> Redemption was completed with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament, we spoke about, the Old Testament is God putting into place everything that was necessary in order that he might fulfill the promise that he made to Adam, Adam that he reinitiated with Abraham, that he re-spoke at Mount Sinai, all right? This plan to provide a means for sinful, unholy human beings to stand in whitewashed robes before the God of the universe, the holy God of the universe, okay? When Jesus was raised from the dead, that plan of redemption was completed. It was done. God did what he said he would do. Just as redemption has been accomplished and is complete, so therefore is the revelation, is the argument. We have completed redemption. We have completed revelation in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> While the Bible is not Jesus, Scripture is not the Son, they are not antitheses. They are entwined and inseparable. The Word of God is solely about the Word of God and his redemption for his people. Redemption reveals 
revelation redeems. This is the young, okay? Oh, it worked. Okay. Um, he is God's full and final act of redemption and God's full and final act, final revelation of himself. Frame argues nothing can be added to his redemptive work and nothing can be added to the revelation of that redemptive work. <clears throat> we are not saying that God no longer speaks, but we must be clear about how he speaks. Um, God now speaks through his son to consider his offices. He is king. And I'm... As, as I run through this, I'm, I'm just quoting from DeYoung in his book. As a king, Christ is already seated on the throne and already reigns from heaven. But the inauguration of his kingdom is not the same as the consummation of it. There are still enemies to subdue under his feet. Hebrews 2.8 Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Psalms 8.6 now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. He's priest. As a priest, Christ is fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood, once for all, never to be repeated again. And yet, this great salvation must still be freely offered, and Christ must keep us in it. Hebrews 2.3 how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard. <clears throat> he is the prophet. As prophet, God has decisively spoken in his Son. He has shown us all we need to know, believe, and do. There is nothing more to say. Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And yet God keeps speaking through what he has already said. The word of God is living and active. And when the scripture is read, the Holy Spirit still speaks. In these last days, God speaks to us, not by many and various ways, but in one way, through his son. And he speaks through his Son by the revelation of the Son's redeeming work that we find. <clears throat> First predicted and prefigured in the Old Testament, then reconciled in the Gospels, and finally unpacked by the Spirit through the Apostles in the rest of the New Testament. Final quotes. This is from Frame. Now, these are, these are quotes that are in the Young's book, but they're not actually. This is Young quoting. This is Frame from the Doctrine of God, page 22, 227. Sorry. Scripture is God's testimony to the redemption he has accomplished for us. Once that redemption is finished and the apostolic testimony to it is finished, the scriptures are complete and we should expect no more additions to them. 
<coughs> and once again, this is kind of a new idea for me. This, this no, this, it's not really a notion. This, this idea that the apostles, you know, I don't know. It's their letters. They wrote them, okay? So you tend to think, okay, you know, it's the apostles giving us more information. But really, if you stop and you think about it, what are they actually doing? They're taking what Jesus gave them, what Jesus revealed to them, and they're applying that to the situations in their churches and with their people. Okay? They're taking Jesus' revelation and apply. So, so they, are, they are an extension of the revelation of Jesus Christ. In, in, in all ways, in, in everything that they say. They do not speak from, the, from, from what they know, what they think. They speak from what they know, what Jesus gave them. And so, if, if, so in, a, in a real sense, when we read these epistles, we can read them as the letters of Paul. Or better, we can read them as the words of Jesus Christ to us. <clears throat> this is J.I. Packer. Pretty pithy. There are no words of God spoken to us at all today except the words of Scripture. So why does this matter? DeYoung Sex suggests four ways. <coughs> with, the sufficiency, with the sufficiency of Scripture, we keep tradition in its place. There's, here's an interesting... This is, here's a quote to think about. In this age of diversity, all right, the diversity most easily overlooked today is the diversity of the dead. There are other helpful sources. There are teachers and preachers from the past. There are creeds and confessions. I mean, Rob used the confession in the last lesson here to, to, to distill for us the significance of the inerrancy of, of Scripture. But they are only as helpful as they accurately summarize and illustrate Scripture. Sola, scripture does, sola Scriptura does not mean by itself, but it does mean that it is the final arbiter of who God is, what it does and does not please Him, and how redemption was accomplished, and how it is appropriated. Okay. Because Scripture is sufficient, we will not add to or subtract from the Word of God. I think that, what, what do you think today? What is the temptation today? Is the temptation today to add to the words of God, or is the temptation today to take from the words of God? Say what? Yes. Okay. What's the what's the what do you think is the stronger impetus right now in this secular age that we live in? To take away? Yeah. Yeah. 
somehow, I, it just doesn't mean what it says, right? <clears throat> We've got to reinterpret it in today and for today's situations. <laughs> what a mess we're going to be in. Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, Scripture is pretty clear on this. Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. It's also in Deuteronomy 12.32. It's in Proverbs 35-6. through 6, And it's in Revelation 22.18-19, which says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this, the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Since the Bible is sufficient, we can expect the word of God to be relevant to all life. Sometimes I think it's pretty important that we, in, in the easy times, it's pretty important that we be clear about this with ourselves. Okay? So then in the bad times, when you have this temptation to say, that it's not enough. That it doesn't work. You know it does. And why do you know it does? Because it's the words of the Son of God. And about the Son of God. The doctrine of the... Oh, and finally, the doctrine... For the sufficiency of Scripture invites us to open our Bibles and hear the voice of God. When you read those epistles, read them as the words of Jesus Christ. That's what they are. And we're out of time, and I'm done. Actually, i got a couple of other slides, but since we're out of time, we'll skip them. All right, guys. Thanks. <laughs>